HIV and syphilis are two sexually transmitted infections that can significantly impact on long-term health. Luckily, we've come a long way in regard to testing, treating, and preventing these infections. Dr. Arthur joins the show to chat about the situation in Australia and what you can do to protect the health of yourself and others. Hi guys, today we are going to be discussing two sexually transmitted infections, HIV and syphilis. We're lucky in Australia to have a very low prevalence of HIV in the general community at around 0.1%. However, we have what is called a concentrated epidemic, meaning in certain subpopulations, the prevalence is significantly higher. So it's important to know who is potentially at risk and who should be screened. As for syphilis, it's an STI that's not even on the radar for a lot of sexually active adults. People tend to think it no longer exists or only happens overseas. However, you may be interested to know that Australia is currently experiencing a syphilis epidemic and it's spreading through large proportions of our community. So even if you've never been affected by either of these infections directly, it's worthwhile to have some understanding about the situation in Australia. So to discuss these sexually transmitted infections in a bit more detail, I'm joined by Arthur and Arthur is a doctor who works in sexual health. And like me, he sees patients with syphilis and HIV pretty much every day at work. Thanks for joining me, Arthur. Thanks for having me, guys. Just so our listeners can get a vibe for kind of who you are, can you just tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I work in a publicly funded sexual health clinic in Sydney, New South Wales. And your listeners might be happy to know that actually in Australia, we're very lucky to have a network of uh, free and confidential sexual health clinics that are all publicly funded in every state and territory. So um, for anyone who's interested or if any of the content of this episode raises any concerns, please feel free to uh, visit your relevant state and territory health department website and there'll be a list of free sexual health clinic for you to visit. You can go there for a screen or raise any concerns or even just have a discussion about your risk. Amazing. And can anyone go there? Yep. Anyone can go. You don't oh, need yes. a Medicare card. So good. Yeah. You can even give a fake name, but not that we're promoting that. <laughs> so <laughs> that if you're from overseas, no Medicare, you're just here for six months on a travel visa. Can you just check in, see yeah. what's going on? Absolutely. And in fact, I think a, a big proportion of our work is is specifically geared towards these people who are visiting Australia from overseas. Amazing. Anyway, let's get started. We might start with HIV. Can you just start by telling us what, what is HIV? Yeah, so HIV is an acronym and stands for the Human Immunodeficiency Virus. So essentially, it's a virus that um, causes a chronic infection in humans. Um, it has a propensity to target specific kinds of cells in the body that has a receptor called CD4. And it just so happens that the majority of our cells with CD4 receptors are involved in the immune system. And this virus uh, basically eliminates a lot of these cells and therefore causes a decline in the immune system over the long term. Okay. And just for people who may not know, what is the immune system for in general? Yeah. So uh, the immune system is one of the organ systems in the body that um, is involved in protecting us from infection. So we are faced with kind of millions of microorganisms every day, either on our skin or in our environment. Mm -hmm. And it's the job of our immune system to essentially keep a balance and to stop them from causing disease. A lot of people come into our, like, the clinics we work at, and they say, I want an AIDS test. <laughs> Can you just explain for us what the difference between HIV and AIDS is? Because there seems to be a lot of confusion in the general community about what the difference actually is. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So AIDS stands for um, Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. And um, fortunately, it's actually a very rare scenario nowadays. It's actually a, a preventable complication of having untreated HIV for a very long time uh, to the point where your immune system is very, very much weakened and you get um, certain illnesses, primarily infections that people with normal normal immune systems may not necessarily get. So if your HIV is treated and under control, you're unlikely to get AIDS, is that what you're saying? Correct. Yeah, it's definitely preventable if you're on the right treatment. And just, I guess, what's relevant to a lot of people who are sexually active, can you just explain how HIV is actually transmitted? Yeah. So um, in Australia, we primarily, when we think about HIV, we really are thinking about sexual transmission, um, as I'll touch on later. Um, that's not always the case in other countries, but according to a 2018 report from the Kirby Institute in the University of New South Wales, um, out of all the new cases of um, HIV in the past 12 months, um, 63% of them identify male-to-male sex as their primary risk factors, whereas a quarter or 25% of them identify heterosexual sex as their main uh, risk factor. So, you know, the majority of them are sexually transmitted. People might be surprised to hear that acquiring HIV through injecting drug use is actually quite rare in Australia. In the same report, only 3% of uh, new cases identify injecting drug use alone as a risk factor, and 5% of them identify both injecting drug use and male-to-male sex. And I think that's, that's quite different. In other countries, as you mentioned, um, I think certainly overseas, injecting drug use, you know, some places do see much higher rates of HIV in that population. But yeah, in Australia, it remains quite low, which is is interesting. Another thing people tend to worry about is um, the rates of HIV amongst commercial sex workers. Is that something that people need to be worried about? Yeah. So that's a really question. Really good question. I think... People we see are always surprised to hear that actually the um, when we did surveillance data among commercial female sex workers in New South Wales, actually the rate of HIV positivity is actually lower than in the general population. It's quoted as being less than 0.1%. Wow. So that's quite low. And yep. it's a fun related fact, actually. Um, uh, it's just to allay some community concerns. It's actually very difficult or next to impossible to acquire HIV through other non-invasive contacts. So just sharing cutlery with someone or hugging someone will not, you know, enable transmission of HIV. So people can feel very safe about that. Um, And on the other hand, actually, uh, another common myth is that uh, people who inject drugs have a high prevalence of HIV infection. But actually, again, we're very lucky in New South Wales, that number is only around Mm 0.3%. And that's probably due to the fact that we've had some very uh, cohesive and robust uh, safe injecting and needle exchange program at the beginning of the epidemic. Yeah. Yeah. Just a caveat to that, I understand that the the overall prevalence of HIV amongst injecting drug users is very low. But when we look at the population of men who have sex with men who are also injecting drug users, that tends to be significantly higher. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so those, the, that group that you mentioned, the people who identify as MSM or men who have sex with men and declare injecting drug use, are probably disproportionately affected by HIV. That's changing. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, and the overall story in, in Australia is that really HIV, in terms of new cases, are primarily affecting men um, and not just gay and bisexual men. So, you know, um, for example, in New South Wales, 
you know, the, the reported prevalence of, of HIV in gay and bisexual men is actually around 8%. And that's probably one of the highest state slash territories. Um, but also, y- you may have read in the news recently that uh, now that we have been able to reduce the new cases of HIV among gay and bisexual men, actually the number of cases in heterosexual men are on the rise. Yeah, okay. And that's not just in the proportion of things, but nominally it's been increasing as well so that's Mm -hmm. a new cause for concern yeah and you mentioned that a quarter of new cases from that kirby institute data were in heterosexual from heterosexual sex yeah and i think that's really interesting for people to know because we've always kind of in australia associated hiv with being a disease that affects gay and bisexual men so i think that's important to i guess just be aware of more than anything yeah, so um, actually, just to dissect that data a bit more, mm-hmm. we now know that actually a lot of those people in that 25% of heterosexually acquired HIV, they're either from high prevalence countries themselves, okay. or they have partners from high prevalence country or, or both. Yep. So that's another group that uh, we really want to get the message out there for. Actually, just going back, we've been using this phrase men who have sex with men a bit. Can you just explain why we kind of use that? Yeah, so... Um, so in the, in, the, in the literature, I guess, you, you come across two uh, terms that are sometimes interchangeable. One is um, men of sex with men or MSM. One is gay and bisexual men or GBM. Mm-hmm. Um, we like the term, or I think both terms are acceptable, but I guess the intention of using MSM is that we really don't want um, any particular group of men to feel excluded from the, the screening program, as in people can identify as as gay, as bi, or any other sexual orientation. But we just want to get the message out there that if you have sex with other men, then it's worthwhile getting a screen and a test. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, obviously we've identified who's potentially at risk in Australia. What kind of things can people do to reduce their risk of acquiring HIV? So that's a a really relevant question. So we're at the end of 2019 coming up to 2020. So now we have a at a disposal, a, a huge variety of, of preventative strategies. So I think uh, most listeners will be very um, familiar with the the idea of having safer sex. That's probably still the bedrock of HIV prevention. So that's, you know, things like using condoms consistently, um, especially when you're having sex with a partner whose HIV status you, you're not aware of. But then there are a host of other things. So there's uh, an idea of strategic positioning where people who um, would change primarily from having receptive sex to having insert of sex to reduce the risk of HIV. But now we have even better things. So um, uh, there's now a very good uh, medication called PrEP, which is a medication you take before having sex to prevent acquiring HIV. But similarly, there's something called PEP, uh, P-E-P, or, which stands for post-exposure prophylaxis, which is a medication you take if you think you've been exposed to HIV in a high-risk situation that you can take to reduce the risk of actually acquiring it. Uh, there is the idea of treatment as prevention or TASP, I'm mm-hmm. getting these acronyms now, uh, which is the idea that if we uh, provide really easily accessible and quality treatment for those in the community who are living with HIV, um, that actually makes them uh, completely uninfectious in terms of their uh, chance of passing on the virus. So in this, in essence, we're not only treating those people, but we're also protecting their potential sexual partners. And this kind of goes into a broader picture that really HIV prevention is not just these things that individuals can do, but also 
people like you and I, Hannah, that we need to make sure that there's equitable access to STI uh, care and screening and, you know, continue our really good work with having a robust needle syringe exchange program in Australia. And actually through this whole buffet table of interventions I've talked about um, is actually making a difference. We now, for the first time in the past year or so, the incidence of new HIV, HIV infection in gay and bisexual men is actually declining to the point now where um, some public health organizations are setting very uh, robust and ambitious elimination goals where we're hoping to eliminate the transmission of HIV altogether within Australia within the near future. Amazing. So obviously not all those options are relevant to absolutely everybody, um, but I guess the important thing to take away from that is that there are lots of options available and the most important thing, I guess, is just to be informed and educated about what's out there and what's what might be relevant to you. If somebody did think that perhaps they were appropriate to be on that PEP medication that you mentioned, so if they were worried they'd had a high-risk encounter with someone who may have had HIV or something, where could they access that? Yeah, so um, I can only speak for New South Wales is where I work. So yep. in New South Wales, uh, all publicly funded sexual health clinics would be able to provide an assessment for an individual to basically clarify the risk to see whether or not they're eligible for PEP. And if so, it will be provided to that clinic completely free and confidentially. In terms of, uh, you know, finding out, uh, you know, how we, the best, what's the best way of accessing it uh, in New South Wales, there's something called the Sexual Health Information Line or SHIL that everyone can call. Yeah, those would be the main ways of accessing that care. So I guess that's all the prevention stuff. In terms of, I guess, something we see a lot is people coming into, you know, clinics and whatever concerned that they might already have a HIV infection. What kind of symptoms can people present with if they do get infected with HIV? Yeah, so we get asked that question a lot and I guess it's a, a, a nuanced answer. I think the most important thing to remember is that people can have entirely no symptoms when they get or have HIV. And in fact, that's actually the case for more than half of people that we see with HIV, which is, again, the reason why it's really important to know your status and to screen regularly at least every three months. Um, if you're having risky sex, such as condomless sex with partners that you don't know the HIV status of. Um, people might be familiar with the concept of uh, an acute seroconversion illness. So that's essentially in some people, when they first get the virus, um, they get a pretty strong immune response to it. They can mimic a, a very severe viral illness, like having fever, sore throat, swollen glands, but not just a garden variety, cold and flu type situation, but actually usually it's quite severe and prolonged. But that's, you know, that's not in everybody and probably not a reliable way of, of knowing whether or not you have yeah. HIV. Yeah. yeah. So basically don't wait around until you're feeling super sick to have a HIV test. Yeah, <laughs> If exactly. you think you could be at risk, probably just... Have one when you're feeling well. Yeah. Now, is HIV curable? So that's a very exciting question, but I guess the, the short answer is that it's not curable currently, but there are a lot of very promising research, both done in Australia and abroad out there, that um, try to employ some really cutting edge bio, biomedical technology going from immune system manipulation to gene editing. Um, and a lot of them are quite promising, but unfortunately, none are currently available for human use. Um, but watch this space, because um, having spoken to a few of the researchers, 
people are now reasonably optimistic that it will be achievable one day, at least for some people living with HIV. But at the same time, uh, it's important to remember that the modern medications that we have for HIV are extremely effective, and it's really good at suppressing the virus and preventing the virus from causing harm. Okay. So essentially, even though it's not curable, it's extremely manageable now. Okay. So if someone comes in to you and you diagnose them with a new HIV, what's what does that mean for them going forward? Yeah. So that's important to talk about because things have changed a lot. Again, um, because it's such a manageable condition now, really, it, it just becomes a, a very um, – it just becomes a chronic health problem for those individuals. Practically, practically speaking, those people would have – a bit more outpatient contact with the health system than the average person. Um, so these people aren't in hospitals sick all the time. They're just attending a clinic regularly when they're feeling well and they have to take their medications regularly and they're usually only one to two pills once a day and it's very manageable for in most people. And there's actually an argument that maybe people living with HIV who are engaged in care and taking the medications may be even healthier than their um, uh, co- like, you know, their counterparts at the same age because they're getting a lot more regular medical checkups than other people mm-hmm. would and screening for uh, health problems that everyone would get before they even happen, like you know, checking their blood pressure and their cholesterol, et cetera. Yeah, interesting. So because they're so highly engaged in care, seeing doctors and whatever, we pick things up potentially earlier than we otherwise would. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So a lot of the followers of my little Instagram page, about 90% are actually women. So I guess so far, you know, maybe this doesn't feel super relevant to them, but I guess we would all know someone who's potentially high risk. So it's all useful information, but I guess specifically relating to women, what's the situation with women and pregnancy? Like can women with HIV have babies? And if so, will the baby have HIV? Yeah, that's a... Uh, it's a good question. So it's important to remember that um, uh, women who are living with HIV can and do fall pregnant and have healthy babies all the time. All pregnant women living with HIV in Australia um, should be managed in the specialist multidisciplinary clinic. Um, and that's usually available through um, the closest kind of teaching hospital. We know that um, there are now a variety of things that we can do Um to reduce the risk of uh, the HIV virus being passed onto the baby. And we know that for people who are able to access all these interventions, the risk of a mother-to-child transmission is actually less than 2%. And actually, Hannah, you and I in, in the clinic we're working, we've actually had a recent success story. Yeah. With a, I wasn't uh, really involved, but... <laughs> yeah, a healthy uh, baby yeah, born. Yeah, very exciting. And really the take-home message is that as long as the mum is healthy, taking their medications and regularly seeing their specialist and doing the blood test to, to check the viral load is suppressed, actually the pregnancy otherwise would just look like any other pregnancy. Yeah. And they used to recommend everyone had cesareans, but that doesn't really happen so much anymore, does it? Yeah, correct. So in the people who are well engaged and stable, really that can be avoided now. vaginal birth. Yeah, yeah. It's good. Just a quick question. If you've been traveling overseas and had sex with someone from overseas, should they should those people be concerned about HIV? Yeah, that's a good question. And we want to get the message out there that if you've had unprotected sex uh, with a partner whose status is not known to you in a high prevalence country, then I think it's really important that you get tested uh, upon return. And 
if nothing else, just come and get tested so to give yourself some peace of mind. I guess lastly, in terms of HIV, I guess one of the really big things that compounds the medical side of stuff is the stigma surrounding it. What do you think in terms of, like, do you think we've come far in terms of how the general Australian community feels and thinks about HIV and people living with HIV? Or do you think there's still a lot of stigma for these people? So, yeah, there's probably one of the, the final frontiers of HIV medicine that we're trying to tackle. As you know, Hannah, in our day-to-day work, really, a lot of our time is spent addressing the negative health consequences of uh, people living with HIV and the, and the stigma that they face. and can come in many forms. It can happen in their personal lives. It can happen in their relationship or even from the employers, which is a, a very unfortunate situation. One of the things that um, we, we're we trying to tackle this, this problem on many fronts, but one of the messages we're really trying to promote is the idea of you equals you. So it's the idea that um, for our p- patients living with HIV who are on treatment, engaged in care, having regular blood tests and their viral load is suppressed, we now know that actually there's no chance of them being able to pass on the virus through sexual means. And that's a, a big deal because a lot of the times the stigma that they, that they encounter are from their prospective sexual partners. So it's important mm. for the wider community to know that and especially for our patients living with HIV. Yeah, I guess it's difficult for us as health professionals, obviously we're not living with HIV, so it, it is tricky to comment on how stigmatised these people might feel. I I do get the feeling that there's still, yeah, definitely room for improvement in terms of just general understanding of HIV. And I've even had, you know, people that I know personally who refuse to get haircuts from someone that they've known mm. to have HIV and stuff like that. And that's just, yeah, like a real misunderstanding, I guess, about what HIV is and how it's transmitted. So I think the more we can spread this message, uh, yeah, the better. Yeah, I agree. I just wanted to read a very quick excerpt from this. Um, it's a 2014 article from the National Association of People Living with HIV in Australia. And it just kind of touches on this, I guess, area of stigma. It basically just says, it came out of nowhere. No one knew what it was, what caused it or how to deal with it. But it was a guaranteed killer. The first recorded case of AIDS in Australia was in Sydney in 1982. It had different names in those days. In the early 1980s, among them were GRID or gay-related immune deficiency, the gay plague or simply the black plague of the 80s. Nowadays, what we know as HIV was then simply called AIDS and its appearance at a time when gay men's sexual health, sexual and emotional lives were still illegal in most Australian states and territories meant that those most affected, gay men and their communities, were sure to be targeted. So I guess in some ways I would like to think we've come a long way since since then. <laughs> but yeah, still still a way to go, I would say. Yeah, absolutely agree. And one last thing on HIV. I just want to shout out about the movie Holding the Man. Have you seen that? No, I've read, I've read the book though. Yes, there's a, a memoir. Yeah. It's so good. I am. I don't normally cry in movies, but I bawled my eyes out. It is. It's an incredible movie. So I just yeah. Yeah, I re- everyone should watch it. I cried at the end of the book, and I never cry reading books. So I was too kind of scared to watch the movie because I know it would blow my eyes out. It was like not sad the whole way through, but there was just this one incredible scene where I was like, I can't go on living. I'm so sad right now. So yeah, everyone watch it. It's really good. Let's move on to syphilis. Um, It's quite different from HIV, but we've kind of grouped them together because they 
I mean, I guess traditionally in Australia have affected similar communities, mm. but uh, can you just start by telling us what syphilis is? Yeah, so syphilis is a, essentially a sexually transmitted infection or an STI that's caused by a bacteria. And fun fact, actually, we've known and kind of uh, battled against syphilis for a long time. The earliest description in the medical literature probably came from Hippocrates in 400 BC, where he described the late manifestation of syphilis. But the first kind of communicable outbreak of the disease was described in print in um, 1495 in Europe. So we are no strangers to syphilis, actually. Mm. And how how does someone get syphilis? Yeah, so essentially syphilis is a bacteria that likes dark, moist uh, skin surfaces. And um, basically, if one of those touch another one of those, then you can transmit syphilis. So practically speaking, that's through sexual transmission in Australia, but it can be through a variety of sexual practices ranging from oral sex uh, in someone who may have an ulcer on the penis or in the vulva or on, in, in the mouth or all the way to having uh, anal sex and vaginal sex, which is why actually using a condom remains one of the most effective ways of preventing uh, a syphilis infection, but obviously you would need to wear a condom for oral sex or an equivalent barrier method as well. Yeah, okay. So condoms, they'll prevent HIV and syphilis. That's good to know. Two for the first one. <laughs> um, and who in Australia is at risk of syphilis? So it's important to remember that actually, biologically speaking, anyone potentially can have syphilis and there's no particular type of person that can or cannot have syphilis and therefore we actually would encourage everyone to get a screen and there are certain situations where everyone will get a screen like for example when you are pregnant and have antenatal care but in terms of the epidemiology of it in australia the, the syphilis cases have traditionally been concentrated in three groups so first of all men who have sex with men in urban settings but also um, younger aboriginal people living in regional and remote places but a group that is often not uh, kind of thought of as much as uh, um, heterosexual uh, people who come from endemic places. So a lot of our geographical neighbours are endemic uh, with syphilis or people who have sexual partners who are from those areas. What kind of symptoms do you see with syphilis? Yeah, so another <laughs> good one. So um, important to remember that syphilis actually can have absolutely no symptoms or sometimes the symptoms can be so mild that people don't necessarily realize that there's something wrong. But at the same time, syphilis is also called the great mimicker because it can cause such a, a wide spectrum of problems. Um, so there's no really kind of textbook reliable way of using symptoms alone. But uh, in general, we will look out for things like ulcers. You know, it can be in the mouth or in the genital areas. Um, people can get a rash all over the body, affecting their hands and feet, can get swollen glands, joint pain and fever. So things that really can mimic a whole variety of other diseases. Yeah. 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 So really non-specific stuff, I guess. Yeah. If you are diagnosed with syphilis, how do, how is it treated? So uh, we're very lucky that despite having treated syphilis for many hundreds of years, um, it has not become resistant to a lot of the treatment that we give it, which is lucky for us. So um, penicillin, which is one of the oldest antibiotics or the oldest antibiotic that we have, is still highly effective against syphilis. So that's the main treatment. That is lucky. And how is it given? So it's um, because we want the, syph the, the, the penicillin to be in the body for 
a, a bit of time, so we have to inject them into the muscles. And what happens if we don't, like if someone has syphilis, don't, never gets tested, don't, don't know they have it because they don't have symptoms, what's the, what can happen if they, if they never get treated for that infection? Yeah, so probably one of the worst things from our perspective is that a person who has syphilis without knowing can pass on syphilis to their future sexual partners or in the cases of women, potentially their their babies if they are not screened during pregnancies. From an individual health perspective, though, um, syphilis can actually cause quite a few problems in the late uh, medium to rate the late term if it's not treated. So it can affect the brain, it can affect the eyes, is the spinal cord, and it can sometimes even affect the cardiovascular system. Yeah, I guess just once again, not having symptoms is not reassurance in and of itself if you're at risk worthwhile being screened. Yeah, spot on. What happens if you get syphilis in pregnancy? So, um, yeah, important to remember that all pregnant women in Australia who are engaged with antenatal care, either through their GP or through an, an obstetrician, will get uh, screening for syphilis. That's really important. So it's not something that we miss or we really shouldn't miss at all. Um, and if women um, who are pregnant and found to have syphilis, as long as they're treated early in the pregnancy, there actually would be little to no harm to the baby. But unfortunately, um, recently we've had a few cases in regional and remote areas where syphilis in pregnancy probably wasn't caught as early as it should have been. And there has been cases of what we call congenital syphilis, which is when the syphilis affects the growing fetus. Uh, leading to um, acute infection in the baby, but also some, uh, you know, congenital malformations as well. Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate thing is that this is a highly preventable complication as long as screening and treatment is taking place early. Yeah. So again, it's good that we um, we do screen pregnant women routinely. Mm. Is there a so you, you talked about prep as like a, a medication you can take to avoid getting HIV if you're continually engaging in high risk sexual behaviors is there an equivalent of that to prevent syphilis yeah so in the in our in our uh, neck of the woods we're floating this idea of um of syphilaxis so prophylaxis against syphilis by taking a, a, an oral antibiotics every day um actually this we're probably not it's not a new concept it's been it's, it's been thought of uh for quite a while now but kind of newly renewed because of our um growing problem with syphilis in both urban and, and regional settings. Unfortunately, in Australia, it's probably not enough evidence to suggest it's widespread use right now. But excitingly, we are looking to run a, a clinical trial to formally assess the effectiveness of this method as early as next year. So Amazing. watch this space. Maybe we can get on top of this once and for all. Yeah, after a few hundred years. <laughs> so I mentioned right at the start of this episode that there's there's an outbreak in Australia of syphilis. Can you tell us a bit about what's going on with that or where, who it's affecting and where it is? Yeah, and I think listeners who are from major urban centres in Australia actually may not even have heard much about it. But um, unfortunately, the past few years, there has been a worrying um, rise in syphilis, in new syphilis infections. Um, it probably started in areas such as the Northern Territory and the rural parts of Western and Southern of, and South Australia and primarily affecting um, mobile and kind of uh, regional remote dwelling um, Indigenous Australians, particularly those within, in the younger age group. But although that's how it started, um, it's 
quickly evolving into what we call a more general epidemic. And um, there's probably uh, it, uh, some evidence to suggest that it's now spreading to other states, such as Victoria and New South Wales as well. Fortunately for us, the, there has been a, a really robust and multi-state and territory response to this epidemic. Um, and really the the way to combat it is the, the good old-fashioned public health work that we do, which is really getting the message out there increasing screening and treating people as soon as possible and making it really easy um, for people to access these services. And I felt this wouldn't be a robust discussion about syphilis without mentioning the the Tuskegee syphilis study, uh, which was basically, it was a, a study done by the American Public Health Service that went for 40 years. So it was a really long study uh, and basically what they wanted to do was learn the natural history of syphilis. So is the natural history of any disease is basically what happens if we don't treat it. So if we don't interfere at all, what will be the natural outcomes of it? Uh, and basically what they did, they enrolled um, a really disadvantaged proportion of the community. So there were poor African-American men and basically informed them that they were going to get free health care. And what they did, they did lots of syphilis testing, but Unfortunately, when it became very obvious that there was a cure with penicillin for syphilis, they didn't encourage these people to access this treatment because that would have interfered with them finding out the outcomes of of syphilis. So, um, yeah, it was a horrendous and a, just an ethical debacle, I guess. But, yeah, I, I would, again, like to think we've come a long way in clinical research since been, you know, doing things like that. Um, but it is it is treatable, it is curable, and uh, yeah. Once again, if you if you are concerned, please just access your GP or sexual health clinic, have a screen, get some reassurance. So I guess in summary, um, just to wrap it up, HIV it's a viral infection. It has a low prevalence in the general community in Australia, but some communities are disproportionately affected. It's extremely manageable and there are many things that we can access to help reduce transmission and risk. On the other hand, syphilis, it's a bacterial infection. It has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's very easily treated with penicillin, uh, but there is currently an outbreak in Australia. So increasing public awareness about the disease, testing and treating and safer sex practices is super important. If you have any questions or discussion points to raise following today's episode, please feel free to join our Facebook group. Thanks, Arthur, so much for being with us and I'll see you Monday at work. You to you, you to me, you to us is a podcast for general discussion only. Nothing we talk about should be taken as personal medical advice and it does not substitute information or instructions given to you by your own doctor. If the podcast raises any questions or concerns for you, please see your GP, sexual health or family planning clinic. For general discussion, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And please stop trusting strangers on the internet with your health. This podcast is a production of Simo Interactive, home of the My Millennial Money Podcast. Podcast.